in Los Angeles, and right next to Long Beach, they have a seaport. You guys know what a seaport is? A place where these big shipping cruisers come, and they drop off products from sometimes countries all across the world. And they have to go through this seaport because they have to be scanned and kind of checked to see whether we're going to allow these things into our country or not. And over this past year, a billion dollars worth of counterfeit items have been confiscated, taken away. So tons of products being brought into or trying to be brought to the United States as these knockoff items, but trying to seem like they're legit. So like items such as like Gucci, Nike, um, Rolex items saying, yeah, this is a genuine Rolex watch, but it ends up actually being a fake. So over a billion dollars, that was as of September, which broke the record of the year before, which broke the record of the year before. So counterfeit items at our are at an all-time high of these people saying, hey, we're going to sell, we just got this normal-looking bag, or we're going to slap a fake Gucci sign on it and sell it like it's a real thing. We paid about 10 bucks for it, we're going to sell for $1,000. Bunch of counterfeit items. And so over a billion dollars worth have been confiscated. But as I was looking up this week, counterfeit items, uh, there's a difference between fake products and counterfeit products. So in response to how many counterfeits are out there, some companies have taken advantage of that and put out these like fake products. So like Gucci is like a, a fake Gucci um, like company saying that we're not trying to say that we are actually Gucci. We're just going to be called fake Gucci. Um, and so Gucci is not really mad at them because they're openly saying, yeah, these are fakes. And guess what? We're not going to sell them as much as um, what real Gucci bags would cost, and so they're well-known fakes. So they don't get mad at that. But what they do get mad at is if they say, hey, this isn't a genuine Gucci bag, but guess what we're going to do? We're going to sell it as if it is legit. That's what they don't like. You can say, okay, you're going to make this fake thing and sell it for less and not even appear. Maybe there's some resemblance, but you're going to make very clear this isn't the real thing. But what they don't like is them saying, hey, no, we're going to try to mimic it just as much as we can, but guess what? It's not actually going to be legit. It's going to be fake. And especially this time of season where you get more items and you're buying more things than you typically do with Christmas right around the corner, we need to beware and keep our eyes uh, peeled for all these counterfeit items that are um, on display. Well, in our passage today, James responds to people who have a wrong view of faith. They have this counterfeit faith, but they claim that this fake faith and this counterfeit faith is genuine. They're saying it's real. They have a misunderstanding of what faith is. And this is what they define faith as, believing facts, knowledge, understanding. They say, hey, that is what faith is. And this is just as genuine of a faith as what the Bible talks about faith is. And he's saying, whoa, 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 just knowing the facts, just believing about Jesus, that's different than genuine Christian faith. It's important for us to understand what is genuine biblical faith, saving faith, as opposed to a counterfeit faith. Why is it so important? Because if you believe that faith is equated to just knowing the facts, and you say you have faith in Christ, and that's the faith, you just know the facts, guess what? It's not a genuine faith, not right with God. Furthermore, you might be a professing non-Christian and say, yeah, I am openly, I'm not right with God, And you might think, oh, in order to get right with God, I need to have this faith, which is just know more about the Bible, know more about God's word. Well, that's not what biblical faith is. That's not how you would get right with God. See, if you 
understand what biblical faith is, which James is going to talk about and we're going to outline, that should give you assurance, not only that, yeah, I have done that, I do have genuine trust in Christ, but say, man, I'm going to live out and do what he calls me to do. So how does James respond to this idea that there is a genuine faith and there's this other faith that is just knowing facts? What does he say to it? Look down at James chapter 2, verse 14. He says this. He says, well, good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So see it right there. He's saying, some people say, okay, yeah, you have the faith that does have works, but us, we have the faith that doesn't have works. So what type of faith would that be? It'd be a faith of just knowing the facts. Yeah, you know what Jesus did. You could recount the Bible stories. Saying, well, does that faith, which faith? The faith that is just head knowledge. Does that faith save him? Well, we would say, no, it doesn't. But maybe someone at this time would say, yeah, if you just say you believe what Jesus did, that faith does save you. He goes on to illustrate why that's an absurd statement to make. Verse 15 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, so you can picture that, a brother or sister, that means a believer, a fellow believer, which we talked about in uh, James 2 when we talked about showing favoritism, that, hey, we should care, especially so, for um, believers, and we should look out for other Christians. So imagine, brother or sister, poorly clothed, got rags, don't have much to it, lacking in daily food. they not even sure where, where lunch is going to come from or if they're going to get dinner. And one of you, verse 16, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Say, would you say that's a good thing or would you say that's a bad thing? Someone comes to you, doesn't have much food, doesn't have much clothing, and you say, go in peace. Yeah, be warm, be filled, like, good luck. <laughs> but you don't do anything. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I mean, no, bad thing. What does that show about the words that you said? Oh, go in peace, be warm and filled. It shows those words that you said, you might have said something, but they were vain words. They were empty. It's, what good is that? It's no good. He goes on, verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So what good is it if you say, be warm and be filled, if you don't do anything, it's no good. So too, a faith by itself, if it does not have works, faith without works, what good is it? It's no good at all. These believers are tempted to think, oh man, if I just know the facts, that's genuine saving faith. And what we need to understand is genuine faith leads to good works. It's not one of the points, but I think you should write that down as that's the main idea of what we should understand from this passage. Understand that genuine faith leads to good works. Genuine faith leads to good works. Because see, if you have this thing called a counterfeit faith, yeah, it's not going to lead to good works. But it all comes down to that word that we need to understand, which is faith. Faith can be confusing for so many people. What does that mean? I mean, you could ask 10 different people, what does faith mean? And you could get 10 different answers. So it's so crucial that we understand that term. That's why for point number one, you need to understand saving faith. Understand saving faith. And what this passage makes extremely clear is saving faith is not just head knowledge. Faith, maybe you said faith equals head knowledge, put a cross through it. Faith does not equal mere head knowledge. I think why we're tempted to think it does mean head knowledge is because if you said, oh yeah, I have 
my faith is Christianity. And then someone else would say, oh, well, my faith is Islam, or my faith is Catholicism. It's like, okay, I have a different belief system than you. And so you say, oh, my faith is this, your faith is that. And we think, okay, faith just means belief system. And so, man, if I have faith in Jesus, I just need to believe that Jesus existed, believe that he died on the cross for my sins. If I know those things and I say in my mind those things are true, I have this saving faith. Well, why? James 2 says that's not the case. If you're still there, look down a little bit. I know we're going to cover this next time, but look verse 19. He goes on, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. So think about that. These people would respond, hey, you believe that there's one God? They say, yes, yes, we believe God. there's one God. We must be right with God. What does he say? Even the demons believe and shudder. You believe God is one? Oh, yes, I do. Well, guess what? The demons also know that there is one God. Not only that, the demons know more about God than you and I do. They know the truth. They know who Jesus is. They know about God. They know about his plan. They're just in open rebellion against it, but they know a lot about God, know a lot about what he's done. They know his word probably even better than us. But are they, do they get to go to heaven? No. Are demons right with God? No. So you see the believe here, used in verse 19, demons believe, saying, yeah, the demons know a lot of stuff. But that's different than having a genuine saving faith. You might think you're a Christian because you know the Bible. You grew up and went to Sunday school. You know all the stories. You did Awana. You've got the verses memorized. I could give you a test and it could say, hey, I want you to write down the gospel and explain the gospel, how we're made right with God. And you might be able to ace it. You could answer Bible trivia. If we did a, a Bible kahoot, maybe you would get first place. But guess what? That knowledge does not equal saving faith. Head knowledge and faith are not the same thing. Let me illustrate it this way. We know that our sin separates us from God, right? We've talked about that over and over. We're sinful separated from God, we deserve punishment. And we need to know how we are saved. Let me give it this way. Imagine you were hanging off the edge of a cliff. So think of like the movies, you know, as you're like, someone's like right on the edge, hang in there. And you need to be saved. You are, look below and you see um, a bunch of jagged rocks below. And you're like, man, if I fall down, I'm going to die. And you're just hanging right there. And right over the top, you see a rope come down next to you. Now, you're hanging there, edge of, your, edge of the cliff, thinking you're about to die, you need to be saved, and a rope comes over. Now, what would be the right response to that? Would you say, oh man, I know that how ropes are made. I know that, you know, it's a bunch of different tiny threads like put together, and, and you know, and that's how the rope, and yeah, if someone were to like hold on to the rope, and yeah, they probably have it tied up there, I know I know how that would work, and they'd probably use their leverage to, to, to pull up. Man, I, I know all that. Cool, I guess I'm going to be saved because I know it. You'd be like, no, <laughs> it's not how it works. Just because you know how ropes work, and you know how someone would be saved in that situation, that's completely different than the right response, which Paxton said up here in the front, is you got to hold on to the rope. That's different than just saying, hey, I know how ropes work. I know how someone in this situation would be saved. 
No, trust is different. Trust is, is separate. Faith, trust, same thing. I want to define that term, define faith. Put it, put it down this way. You should write this down. Faith, biblical faith, saving faith, is this. I'll say it a couple times. It's placing your trust only in what Christ has done to earn your forgiveness. Placing your full trust only in what Christ has done to earn your forgiveness. Did you write that down? Full trust, complete confidence. In who? Jesus. What he's done. Saying, I'm holding on to the rope. My confidence is not in me trying to climb out of this cliff. No, I'm holding on my confidence. Trust is in this rope to be saved. Us too saying, my confidence would make me right with God is Jesus paid for my sins by dying on the cross. It's the death I deserved. He did it so that I don't have to go to hell. My confidence, if I, I was to die, stand before God, why should I get into heaven? Well, nothing about me. It's because of what Jesus did, and that's it. See, full trust only in what Christ has done. There's no partial trust in Jesus and partial trust in myself. Not this split confidence. Philippians chapter 3 talks about that, and I want you to turn to it. Philippians chapter 3. There were individuals back in the time that the book of Philippians were written that said, hey, in order to be right with God, you need to partially trust in Jesus, but guess what? You also have to do this thing called circumcision, that that's necessary for you to be made right with God, a work that you need to do. So, okay, yeah, Jesus is important, and yeah, you should trust in him, but also make sure you've done this thing also because that's needed, circumcision. Now, Paul writes, Philippians 3, to respond to those people who say, yeah, you've got to do some sort of additional work to be right with God. Philippians 3, you guys there, look at verse 2. It says, look out for the dogs. It's not talking about literal dogs. What he's saying, watch out for these people who he describes as dogs. goes on, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Say, hey, you know what we're all about? Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh. Saying, hey, their confidence was, oh, well, I've done this, done this ritual. I've been circumcised. That, that must be good to God. I must have earned my way a little bit. Verse four, four, verse 4 says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. It's like if anyone thinks they have a reason to be confident in themselves, in like their own resume, he's like, I've got a lot more. I have way more reasons. If, if getting into heaven was trusting in Jesus, plus you had to do some works, guess what? I've done them all, and you list them off. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Say, hey, no one could really look at me and say, hey, man, you did this thing wrong. Blameless. Remember Jose talked about that term last week, blameless? It's the idea of no one can point at you and say, hey, you messed up here, 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 and here. It's spotless, clean. People that try to accuse me, guess what? My resume looks pretty good. 
man, is that why I have confidence that I'm right with God? My resume is good? Look at verse 8. Indeed, it says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Saying, hey, you can't have Christ and also think you are relying on your good resume also. That's not how it works. He's saying all those good things that maybe I was relying upon before to make me right with God, they mean nothing. They don't merit me any favor or standing before God. See, what it means to trust and put your confidence in, in God is not looking at maybe the good works that you've done in the past and say, man, those things are getting me a little closer to God. You're not relying on your good resume. But also, you're not excessively punishing yourself for your bad resume. What, this is what I mean by this. Maybe you think, and you're tempted to think, how can God ever accept me when I keep giving into this temptation? Keep giving into this sin over and over again. I mean, I have no right to call myself a Christian as long as I keep giving into this temptation. You ever had that thought before? Well, think about that statement that, you're, that you said right there. I have no right to call myself a Christian as long as I keep yielding to this temptation. Well, if you flip that around, what you're saying is, if only you could not give into that temptation, if you were only able not to give into that sin, you know what you could do? You could be acceptable to God. That you would be acceptable to him if you could just not give into that sin. I know it seems like you're trying to punish yourself down because you're saying, oh yeah, I'm really a sinner because I keep giving to the sin. But you're, there's a workspace mindset that's coming into there that, oh man, if I didn't give in to this, wow, I'd, maybe, I, maybe I could earn my way up. I'd be more acceptable to him. It's not true. Your works and your sinful resume, guess what? Both before God, don't make you any closer to him, don't make you any further away from him. We're all sinful and separated and deserving of God's punishment. Oh, well, they've done worse things than I have. Guess what? One sin fully separated from God. That's why we have no confidence in ourselves. Trust is complete faith, saving faith, complete reliance on him. That should be the right response. If you know the gospel, it's a great thing. You know how we're made right with God. But the right response is trusting in him. Nothing else. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. In Mark 4, Jesus gives the parable of uh, the sower, parable of the soils, maybe what you think it, of it as. And he gives this parable where the seed that's tossed out is like the gospel message going out. So, like, the sower is the evangelist, and the seed going out is like the gospel being spread. And the different soils are different people and their responses to the gospel when it comes to them. And we see three, three soils respond incorrectly, and one of us, one of them, respond rightly to it. I think it's helpful and insightful for us to examine whether I and whether we have genuine saving faith or not to look at this example in Mark chapter 4. So, Look at Mark 4, verse 1. It says, And he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, 
He was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. So picture that. Farmer going out, tossing some seeds in the soil. Verse 4, and he sowed. Some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Okay, what is that talking about? Okay, so we threw some, goes on the the path, birds go up and eat it. Well, right below it, he explains what this parable means. So jump down, let's see what the first soil is about. Drop down to verse 14. It says, the sower sows the word. That's the gospel message. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So this first soil is the person who maybe hears the gospel, maybe comes to church, comes to the narrow, and they hear it, but guess what? Immediately just brush it off. That's it. Don't really think about it. Their heart is too hardened by their own sin and by disobeying God that they say, oh, whatever, not really going to listen. But they heard it. This isn't the person that's just out on the world, doesn't get to hear the gospel. No, this is someone who comes to church hearing, who's heard the word, but hardened heart says, ah, no, I'm good, and brushes it off. Second soil, Mark 4, jump up, verse 5. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Let's look at the explanation. Verse 16. These are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The one who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This would be the person who maybe also comes to church, or maybe they even go to revival or winter camp. And they're convicted. And they're convicted of their sin, and guess what they do? They say, I need to talk to my small group leader, and they cry, and you cry because you're sinning. You're, I'm so sorry for my sin. But guess what? Come back after camp, it's the same. Your life looks the exact same. It's the worldly grief that we've talked about in the past that 2 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about, where it's, oh, I feel sorry for my sin, but it's not a genuine repentance, not genuine of saying, man, yeah, I'm taking this seriously. Saying, oh man, I'm going to feel sad for a while, but guess what? Yeah, I'm not really all in for for this Jesus thing. Second one, doesn't take it seriously. Look at the third one. Look at Mark 4, verse 7. It says, other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Okay, what is that talking about? It grows up, some thorns choke it out. Drop down verse 18. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. These would be the people that maybe would come to the narrow, would be a part of train, say, yeah, I'm all in. True north, yeah, I'm all in. Gonna be a part of servants, gonna serve a lot and be all a part of it. Once I get into college, guess what? Ah, oh, man, I don't want to look weird by being about all this Jesus stuff. Man, I just kind of want to blend in. Oh, all the things that non-Christians in college are doing, I want to do the same thing. So guess what? I'm going to start doing the same thing. Well, that person, didn't it seem like they responded rightly at first? 
Did they, were they a Christian in junior high and high school and then they stopped being a Christian in college? No. Their rebellious lifestyle in college shows that, man, that faith that you said you had earlier, it wasn't a genuine faith. 1 John 2 talks about loving the world and the things in the world. And if you love the world, you can't love God and the world at the same time. You have to give up the things of this world to say, I'm all in for Christ, forsaking your old lifestyle. I mean, think about Jesus. When he called his disciples, he said, follow me over and over again. Follow me, follow me, follow me. They had to be willing to say, oh, well, I really want to be like this great fisherman. Like, <laughs> well, guess what? You're no longer going to be fishermen. You're going to be fishers of men. So in them saying, yeah, I'm trusting you, Jesus. It's not just, oh, yeah, I, I believe that you are the Messiah. No, that faith is saying, I'm willing to be all in for you. I'm following after you. Oh, but I want to do all these other things. I'm setting it aside. I'm doing what you want. So too, saving faith is not, oh, I get to be the Jesus thing, but also I get to do whatever I want. It's submitting to Jesus as your Lord. This is a term used in Christianity all the time. It's called the Lordship of Christ. You think of that word, you think Lord. You think of Lord, you think master. Um, back in the old days, say, um, slaves, they would say they had masters and they would be a Lord to them. So the one in charge. So think, think of that. A slave, if they had a Lord, whatever the Lord wanted them to do, what would they do? They'd have to do whatever the Lord and the master wanted them to do. So by Jesus being our Lord, when we say, yeah, I trust in him, he becomes our master, the one in charge. Say, hey, I'm going to do what he wants to, not out of, oh man, I got to do it. But no, he saved me. I, I trust in him to make me right with God. I'm going to do what he calls me to do. That's what the fourth soil is. Look at Mark chapter four, the fourth one. Verse eight says, and other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Let's get the explanation. Verse 20, but those that were sown on good soil, those who hear the word and accept it, that's putting your faith, your confidence in Jesus Christ. Guess what happens? You bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. You have this saving faith, this penitent faith, penitent, repentance, saying, man, I'm done with my old lifestyle. I'm following after Christ, trusting in him alone to make me right with God. Guess what's going to happen? Your life's going to look differently. You're going to grow. Second Corinthians 5, 17, no longer old life, but now a new lifestyle. Does that mean that, oh man, that person is bearing a lot of fruit. My, my, I'm not quite bearing as much fruit. I must not be a Christian. No, I think it's even interesting how it says some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. So different believers are going to grow at different rates than others. So like, oh man, well, that person's a way godlier Christian than I am. That means I'm not right with God. No. Yes, there's going to be a change in your life, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, but it doesn't mean we all grow at the same rates. But there is that change. And that's why in James 2, 14 through 17, he says, faith without works is dead. Because if you have a genuine faith, what are you going to do? You do good works. But do I present my works to God and say, here's my faith, here's my works. Am I right with you now? No. That's where a lot of confusion comes. What does works have to do with the equation? Point number two, 
we need to realize the role of works in salvation. What role do works play in salvation? It can be tricky. It can be confusing. It can be hard for sometimes individuals to understand. So TV show out. Um, I don't know if it's still running, but watched episode back in the day. Who wants to be a millionaire? Anybody seen that TV show? Who wants to be a millionaire? Basically, one person comes, sits in a hot seat where they're asked a series of like trivia questions. Basically, um, they're given four answers, and if they say get the first one right, they have now just won a hundred dollars. But in order to go to the next question, you have to be willing to say, all right, I'm gonna put all my money on the line. If I get this question wrong. I lose my 100 bucks, but if I get it right, I get 500. Then it goes like 1,000, then 10,000, 50,000, 100,000, 250,000, 500,000, all the way up to a million if you get all these series of questions right. So they start off, the first one, say it's like 100 bucks, starts off with like a pretty easy question. Here was one of them. Which Disney character famously leaves a glass slipper behind at a royal ball? Is it A, Pocahontas, B, Sleeping Beauty, C, Cinderella, or D, Elsa? Obviously, D, Elsa, for sure. No, it's like, okay, 100 bucks online, boom, easy. I got that one, set. But guess what? As the questions go on and more and more money is on the line, guess what? The questions start getting harder. They get more complicated. I mean, if you're running the show, I mean, that's part of the plan. More money's on the line, it's more important. Guess what? I'm going to give a harder question. So here's one of them. Who is the only British politician to have held all four great offices of state at some point during their career? Is it A, David Lloyd George, B, Harold Wilson, C, James Callahan, or D, John Major? Who is it? If you guessed James Callahan, you would have just won your million dollars. I was like, oh, yeah. But like that one, great job guessing, those of you who picked James Callahan. Well done. Um, it's like... Okay, you just took a random guess. That question, I think you would say, was so much harder than the first one. Why? Because the people who play the game, the people who are in charge of the game, know, man, this is a very important question because we might have to give them a million dollars right here, so guess what? We're going to make it hard. We're going to make it confusing. Well, you know who's in charge of this world at this present point? The Bible talks about Satan being the ruler of this world. And something that is so important is what do works have to do with salvation? And because it is so important, Satan wants to make it as confusing and tricky as he can. And he's a really good job at it. A lot of people misunderstand what works have to do when it comes to our salvation. What are the role of works? He wants to make it confusing. He wants to make it tricky. Cults, well, I mean, you see Satan's doing a good job because there's a bunch of cults out there, which are other religions that teach an incorrect view of what works have to do to make us right with God. Cults will take the phrase in James 2.14 to say faith without works is dead and say that this equation that you can put up behind me, that this is the way that you're made right with God. That if you know the gospel, what Jesus did, actually I'll do this way, you know the gospel, what Jesus did, you respond with repentance and faith, the penance and faith, and you do good things. If you add those three things together, guess what? You're made right with God. You're, you're good with him. I mean, and you can even understand how if someone just said James 2.14, they could fall under the idea that there's some sort of um, external conformity that's necessary to be made right with God. Other religions point this out all the time, and, and that's 
This is what other religions believe, Catholicism. Oh, yeah, you have to know what Jesus did. Yeah, they even love the term faith. They twist faith to mean something that it doesn't. But also, guess what? You have to do these certain sacraments, they say, to be made right with God. Water baptism, got to take part in communion. You got to take part of this thing called penance in confessing your sins to a priest. Those things are necessary for you to be made right with God. Is that the only religion? Islam. That works. Being necessary, they teach that too. You got to keep the five pillars of Islam, saying the creeds, do the fasts, pray, giving, if you can, make the pilgrimage. They say that's necessary. The Mormon faith, Mormon faith teaches that there's this sort of work system that if you keep doing well, you can progress and make your way towards godhood. You can be a god one day. You just follow the right steps. Jehovah's Witnesses, they say, yeah, Christ removed Adam's sin on us, but now you have the opportunity to merit your own salvation. Because, yeah, Adam's sin is removed by Christ, but still your sin, you got to, I mean, if the ads stack up right and you do more good than bad, that's necessary. Think about it. Those people, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholics, they claim to believe the Bible. You see how Satan is so good at trying to make it confusing, even parts of Scripture to say, oh, well, I mean, works must be necessary for our salvation. And if you believed this is the right way to get right with God, this equation behind me, you're trusting in yourself. Because why? Good deeds is necessary on you to keep it up. Salvation is not you. It's a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Saying, you know how you're saved? By faith. No, you're not saved by faith. What does it say you're saved by? Grace. See, even people think we're saved by by faith. No, we're saved through faith, but we're saved by God's grace. We don't deserve it. It's not your own doing. You don't have to add things to God's sacrifice on the cross to be made right with God. No, not a result of works so that no one may boast. People will look at Ephesians 2 and James 2 and say, wow, Paul and James are really must not be friends. They, they must be arguing with each other because Paul says, oh, you're, you're saved only by faith. And James says, you got to have faith in works. They're not competing with each other. I even put a book on the back. It says, Paul versus James is the title of the book. Helpful one that explains how they're not competing against each other. They're addressing two different problems of their time. Ephesians, Paul's addressing people who think that they need to do good things to merit their salvation, which is this problem that people were having. Um, Sorry, no, go back to the first one. (laughs) This was the problem that Paul was addressing, that you need good deeds to order to be a Christian. What James is addressing is this next equation at the top, which is that if you know the gospel and you have the response, it equals being a Christian, let's just throw out the good works altogether. And guess what? A lot of people will accuse Christians of believing this. I even had a Catholic lady um, when we went out sharing the gospel last time saying, so, so wait, you could, you could say that you have faith in Jesus and then just go out and like murder a bunch of people and um, you know, rob a bunch of stores and because it's not by works, then, then they can just go do that. Well, think about this. If you had a genuine trust in Christ, would you go out and do those things? No, you wouldn't. 
but is my confidence in, wow, I have the faith, but also I haven't done those bad things. No. Genuine faith leads to good works, not genuine faith in Christ leads to salvation. That's why this third equation is the right one behind me. The gospel, understanding what Christ did, responding with a penitent faith, it's repentance and faith, equals you being right with God, and you know what's going to come as a result of that faith? On this side for you guys, good deeds, good works. It's going to come as a result of it. That's what James 2, 8 through 9, I think 8 through 10, states very clearly. You're saved by grace through faith. God's grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We learned that at Revival, but we also touched on verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works. So now that you have been saved, guess what you're going to do as a result if you have genuine faith? Good works. But if you have this faith that is just a head knowledge, which isn't even a real faith, you know it's not going to come? Good works. Does that make sense? It can be so confusing for a lot of people. And um, this crucial part of works and salvation is what separates genuine biblical Christianity from all these false religions out there in the world. And you need to be ready to respond to people who believe it's the first equation, that it's gospel response, good deeds equals being a Christian. You need to be ready to respond to that. People who say, no, that is it. How would you, how would you, what would you point them to? How would you explain that? That's incorrect. But second, when people counter, as the Catholic lady did to me, to say, oh, wow, so good works, there's nothing. I mean, you don't have to do anything. You have to explain, no, a genuine faith leads to good works. Biblical, genuine faith, you, you wrote that down at the top, I hope you did, that we need to understand that genuine faith leads to good works. Those good works save us? No but they're the results of a genuine trust in Christ. Maybe you're not sure whether you've had a genuine trust in Christ or, man, has my faith just been head knowledge? Which one is mine? Was my faith a penitent faith or a counterfeit faith? Point number three, you examine the fruit of your life. Examine the fruit of your life. You need to look at your works. Oh, why? I need to look at my works because they save me? No. Because they show the validity, validity of your faith. They show, man, did I really put my whole trust in him? Submit to him as Lord? Or was I still trying to hold on to the world? When I was younger, I had a um, tree in my backyard which produced fruit, and it was kind of a weird fruit. I don't know if you ever heard of uh, the fruit kumquat. Kumquat? Yeah, so good. Loved them. Um, yeah, really good, really good fruit. And sometimes, like, I think seasonally, they would um, produce out on the tree. If not, if you don't know, they're like these little orange things and they're super sour. And I would used to like take them in bags and bring them to school and be like, all right, who could eat the most at once? Um, I think, remember, I think someone did like seven or eight once, like in their mouth, which yeah, I don't even know how, but I think I did like five or six once. So sour. It's like unreal. Um, but guess what? 
when that tree, it didn't always produce fruit. I mean, in season, obviously, there, there, were, there was fruit that was produced on that. But guess what? One year, there's a ton of, ton of fruit on the tree. Well, the next year, there might not have been as much fruit, but guess what? There was still fruit on the tree. And then the next year after that, guess what? Oh man, there was a lot more fruit on it. So every season, there was fruit, but maybe not the same exact amount of fruit, maybe varying levels of fruit. But guess what was always consistent on the tree? Fruit. If, if one year I looked up at the tree and there was nothing on it, I'd be like, well, I guess it's dead. Chop it down, throw it away. Guess what? Uh, pointless, not good at all. If you have a genuine trust in Christ, you know what's going to come? Fruit. That means your life's going to look differently. You're going to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Does it mean that every season of your life, you know what I mean? There's, there's nothing wrong that I ever do. No. There might be times as a believer that, man, you're giving into this sin. You're not going to be perfect as a Christian. But guess what? Your life is going to look differently. Won't be perfect. Said here at Compass all the time, not perfection, but a change in direction. Look at the time when you are professing, say, yeah, that's when I, I put my trust in Christ. Well, is there a change before and after? If so, that should be encouraging to you. That should bring assurance. If there wasn't a change, you need to ask yourself, was that a genuine trust? Was it a real faith in Christ? Once again, oh, well, I'm, I'm sinful in this way, and I recognize I'm sinful in this way. Yeah, oftentimes after you become right with God, your sin becomes more apparent to you, and you see how much really God did save you. Um, but just because you recognize and more aware of your sin afterwards than you were before doesn't necessarily mean that, man, there's, there's no fruit there. Yeah. Another thing that's, I think, important to note on this is your fruit don't just look externally for fruit. Let's say someone who, before they're a Christian, they robbed a bunch of banks, they stole a bunch of cars, um, killed a bunch of people. It's like, okay, if that person genuinely trusts in Christ, guess what? Their life is going to look very different. Like, they're not going to steal a bunch of cars, and it's like, okay, that's very apparent. But maybe you, you come to church, and you said, okay, when I, uh, before I profess faith, I went to church. And now after I profess faith, I still go to church. Or before I became a Christian, I read the Bible. After the Christian, guess what? I still read the Bible. Before I was a Christian, I contributed in small groups. After I became a Christian, I contributed during small groups. Kind of still looks the same. When I challenge you to look at the works of your life, don't just look at the things you do. Think of your thoughts. Think of your motivations. So if before you profess faith, oh, man, I went to church because, oh, parents made me, and afterwards I went to church because my parents made me, oof, I'd say there's a red flag right there. But if there's a change in motivation, desires change, then slowly you're going to see this, this external difference. It says, man, I am a new creation in Christ. Don't have time for this, but I want to write, write down Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. We don't have small groups this week, but I challenge you to go through this passage and on one side, write down the works of the flesh. 
verses 18 through 21 have all these works of the flesh on it. Now, on the other side of paper, I want you to write down the fruit of the Spirit. And I want you to look at your life before and after, if you're a professing Christian, that profession of faith, and say, man, does my life line up more with the works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit? Once again, I'm not going to be perfect, but what side does it line up more with? That might help clarify whether you had a penitent faith or a faith that was just, oh, I know the facts. I'm not fully in, though. It might be helpful to ask your small group leader if they've seen a change. Maybe ask your parents. Ask a godly leader. I wouldn't necessarily ask your friends because they're going to be like, oh, yeah, I've definitely seen a friend. You want someone who's going to be honest with you? Even if the honesty is, I, I really haven't seen any difference at all. I mean, it should be clear. Your friends at school should know. If you went up to your friends and said, oh, I'm a Christian, would they be shocked? Like, oh, what? You're a Christian? What? I didn't know that. That's probably not a good sign. It should be evident. It should be clear to those around you. You need to ask yourself whether you have a saving faith, a penitent faith, or a faith that was just merely head knowledge. Because James... He's addressing those people that say, oh yeah, I've got this faith that is just, I know the facts. He says, it's dead. It's not real. It's a counterfeit faith. You need to understand, genuine faith leads to good works. That's what this whole sermon's about. Be ready to res- respond to those objections and examine your own heart to say, man, have I trusted in Christ? Have I submitted to him as Lord of my life? Or have I not? Let's pray right now. God, we thank you that our salvation isn't dependent upon us doing things to earn your favor because we know we can't, as we talked about last week. It's not possible for us to keep your commandments. We're sinners. We need to be saved. It's only possible through what your son has done on the cross. I pray that we would examine our own hearts to see whether we have completely put our trust in you, have our confidence in you, And God, I pray for the Christians in this room that they would have greater assurance because of Christ, but that they would even see the ways that you have grown them and changed them more into the image of your son, and that would bring a confidence and a sureness to what maybe they they lacked before. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.